Morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study your word. We ask for your spirit to enlighten our minds and transform our hearts that we can be like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number seven in our quarterly, Health and Healing. And the lesson title this week is Rest and Restoration. Will somebody read for us the memory text there, please? Which is Mark 631. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them... Come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. How many of you all need that advice? (laughs) And we're going to explore that today. Um, It says in the lesson there, it says that a medical student was burning out, staying up late at night, studying, uh, not getting uh, much rest, but but was falling behind. Grades were getting worse and worse. And one of the professors told him to, no matter what, get seven hours of sleep a night and exercise 30 minutes a day. Even though the student felt like he didn't have enough time to do that, he started doing that. And lo and behold, his grades improved and he ended up graduating medical school. What do you all think about that whole process? Absolutely. Everybody's absolutely, I believe it. Okay. Yes. My my first thoughts were, this is not the way things are supposed to be. We're not supposed to need rest. It's not the way that's how we're going to God rest. Well, let's, since, since Russell brought that up, let's, uh, let's jump to Monday's lesson. Let's jump to Monday's lesson. And, uh, and uh, let's look at the uh, first paragraph. Russell, why don't you go ahead and read the first paragraph for us? All of us are aware of the need to rest. We need food, we need water, and we need rest. So often our bodies themselves give us a signal that it is time to rest. So often the signals are loud and clear. Much of the time, if we would listen to what our bodies tell us, we would get enough rest. Unfortunately, we are so often caught up in hustle and bustle of life, earning money, running here and there, that we don't listen to our own flesh. How many folks struck down by sickness finally have been forced to rest, and for a long time, too? Who otherwise would have been fine had they listened to what their own bodies were telling them. Sooner or later, we will rest one way or another, which is why I do it the best way possible. So, uh, the, the lesson is suggesting that when God created the earth with evening and morning, he was setting up a biorhythm which would include sleep. Question, Russell raised, was sleep required in the Garden of Eden? It was pretty dark. And the corollary question to that, will sleep be necessary or part of our experience in the new heaven and new earth? Ah, okay, we have a variety of interesting opinions here. Well, let's, let's read, um, let's read this, this text out of Revelation 21, 23 through 25 and Revelation 22, 5. It says, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Hmm. Literal light? light? Says there's no more night. Doesn't say there's no more darkness of mind. (laughs) Yes. You know what? Um, I have always understood that that was a description of, because it says the gates won't ever be shut because there'll be no night there. The gates don't have to be shut because of night. The gates have to be shut because of what happens at night. And the earth didn't need the sun, moon, and stars either because light was created before the sun, moon, and stars, before the cyclical nature of the sun, moon, and stars. So I don't 
think that that indicates that there won't be a night or sleep in heaven? We have lots of opinions here, don't we? <laughs> How are we going to keep track of the seven-day cycle? You don't need a night or day to keep track of the seven-day cycle. You can still see, if we have God's presence on earth, and He is brilliant and bright, and there's never any darkness, it doesn't mean we can't see that, you know, it's like, we see, do you see the moon during the daytime in the sky? Okay. So the sun will be like the moon. You'll see the sun, but it won't be providing the light any more than the moon provides the light during the daytime. But is that describing when we're in heaven during the thousand years? Well, how, this, is, uh, this is pamphlet 43, page 39. See what you think about this. This is Ellen White writing. Elders White and Dr. Kellogg have not given themselves proper rest. God instituted the Sabbath as a day of rest to repair nature's exhausted energies. No mind can continue day after day without cessation, either in business, which taxes the mental powers, or in the acquirement of knowledge without injury. There is no night in heaven. There is no wear and weariness of the human machinery. There we shall never be sensible of fatigue, never need or want repose. There is no tire in performing God's will. We shall never be wearied in the sounding of his praise. We shall always have the freshness of morning. But as we are now in this world with bodies which weary, we must pay heed to God's plan and take repose when we need it. That said, it's speaking of heaven. I'm asking the question. In the new heaven and the new earth was my question. Will we need to sleep? Yes. (laughs) 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 What do you think that that meant? The Bible talks continually about darkness and they walked in darkness. They're not talking about... That the sun suddenly went out in the middle of the day, and all that happened too. But he's talking about a mental attitude, and I think no, we won't ever be in the state that we are, where we're so exhausted. That just because we aren't exhausted, just because we don't, because we don't fall apart at the seams and fall into an exhausted state, doesn't mean that sleep could still be a natural cyclical part of who we are. I think I think I think sleep is part of the process of sin. I think that if there wasn't for sin, we wouldn't sleep. I think sin is the is a process of uh, what does the Bible call death? And it's part of that process of our weakness needing to sleep and to be restored and to resurrect each morning with a freshness. The brain does process. I'm going to get into sleep architecture here in just a moment. It does because we are in a world of sin. For instance, look at our biology. We're talking about a biological process. Do you think we're going to have septic systems in heaven? Some people say yes. Some people nodding. No, I think there's going to be 100% energy transfer, complete perfection of God's system, that when you eat a piece of fruit, there won't be any waste products left over. Your body will assimilate and transfer completely to energy all that you assimilate. Yes. Um, going back to God's when he created the world perfectly were those bodily functions there was the sleep cycle he made greater the life of the day less than the night was you know in the cool of the evening apparently there's a quiet down time or a time of less activity um, when he created the, the Garden of Eden for us would, won't that be like when we uh, see the heaven or 
I think there's going to be a, a, the earth rotating on its axis still. There's going to be a sun 93 million miles away from our earth. But God's presence is going to be its light. And it's more than just an, an intellectual awareness of knowledge. It is a physical light. Moses had a physical light coming from his face when he came down off the mountain. They saw it. It wasn't combustion, but it was some type of light that actually was something you could see with your eyes. Um, we don't really understand this type of light, but this is what the scriptures describe. And so this light is, says in uh, 1 Timothy 6.16 that God lives in unapproachable light. And he is going to reside here on earth. This earth is going to be the physically brightest spot in the universe because God will reside here. Uh, I don't believe in our perfect state that there's going to be a need for rest and repose. Now, if you, you, you're free to believe that. That's okay. But I don't think the evidence supports it. But go ahead. Just to come back to it, you said when we eat fruit, we'll absorb it all. Does that mean our whole anatomy is going to change? Our colons or our anuses are going to disappear? And we're going to be able to absorb fire? Well, lions will have to have a different digestive system to eat grass. I, I, think, I think that we don't really know the fullness of the way God designed us in that way. But I do think there's going to be some significant changes. I don't know that our, our anatomy is going to change in the overall structure, but its efficiency will change. But if you have no waste product, you don't need a cold or When you breathe, you give away a waste product called carbon dioxide. That's a waste product. It's a waste product. For, for other people. The carbon dioxide is a waste product from our body that we give back the plants use. I think that the GI system may have something very similar to that. Um, I really don't see a, a heavenly septic system. I don't, I don't see it. I, I don't see it described in the city. The sewer systems were made of gold. <laughs> uh, silver. There you go. They were made out of silver. There you go. <laughs> because they tarnish. Yes. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we have, some, we have some insights here that would give us pause to at least question the idea of sleep. There will be no night there, that there will be no wearing out of the human machinery. We will never get tired, never have fatigue. We will always feel as fresh as morning. If you're always feeling as fresh as morning, always, 24 hours a day, you feel as fresh as morning. You really think you're going to go with that full of vibrance and energy and say, you know what, I'm going to go lay down and sleep? In fact, no, I don't think you will. In fact, when you have the fullness and fresh of energy of morning, it's hard to sleep. Your body doesn't really want to sleep. Some people aren't that fresh in the morning. Okay. And maybe we should move on to that. Okay. Is sleep, is sleep, move on. Is sleep necessary in our current world? Yes. Yes. And has anyone in here ever had a problem with sleep? Yeah. Only three people. Okay, we're not being truthful. 37% of U.S. adults complain of excessive sleepiness that interferes with function at least a couple days a month. 16% of adults complain of excessive sleepiness that interferes with functioning at least a few days a week. Major world incidents that occurred due to oversleepiness. Chernobyl, remember the Chernobyl meltdown? That happened because the operators were excessively sleepy and weren't monitoring the things properly. Exxon Valdez spill in Alaska happened because the operator was excessively sleepy and sleep-deprived. Motor vehicle accidents. Falling asleep while driving is responsible in the U.S. for 100,000 crashes a year, 40,000 injuries, and 1,550 deaths a year. Excessive sleepiness impairs driving as much as alcohol intoxication. Women have more sleep problems than men. Does that surprise anybody? And this sleep problem actually changes with the life cycle. Recent survey of women in the United States found that uh, they're not sleeping very well. 67% of women report sleep problems a few nights each week. 67% of women. 46% report sleep problems every night. Contributing factors to women's sleep problems? 
What would you guess they might be? <laughs> Actually, that wasn't listed. Children, family, career, and housework. Contributing fa- factors. Hormonal changes as well. Uh, 24% of women of childbearing years report problems sleeping all but a few nights per month. Meaning a few nights per month they're sleeping well. Most of the nights they're not. 40% of women during pregnancy had trouble sleeping most of the nights of month. 55% of postpartum, right after you give birth, trouble sleeping. 55% of postpartum women reported problems sleeping all but a few nights per month. 25% of perimenopausal and 30% of postmenopausal women report sleep problems more than all but a few nights a month. 72% of working mothers, working mothers had sleep impairments. Cause of frequent awakenings included noise, so maybe the, snor- the snoring, okay, noise, there you go. Uh, children and pets. Uh, noise, 39% of the time. Children, 20% of the time. Pets, 17% of the time. Now, believe it or not, 9% of women report having children in the bed with them, and, se- and 14% of women report having pets in the bed with them. And, and those who had, had um, either children or pets had more sleep problems than those who didn't have a child or pet in the bed with them. Does that surprise anyone? No. Consequences to women for poor sleep, 80% increase in stress, 55% were unhappy, sad, or depressed, 39% less time with family, so spending less, 39% less time with your family and friends, 33% are too tired for sex, 27% drive drowsy, 20% are late for work for sleep-deprived women. Even though many women are found to be consistently and dangerously sleepy, they are not trying to get more sleep. Instead, 60% choose to do chores after the kids are bed. 20% choose work-related to their job after the kids are bed. 87% watch TV at night to try and relax. 51% read books late at night instead of going to sleep. 37% engage in activities with their kids that keep them up. And interestingly enough, sleep-deprived women don't spend much time with their spouses. They do all this other stuff, don't spend much time with their spouses. Thoughts about this? Pardon? Avoidance. Avoidance. Yeah. Thoughts. Any sleep deprived? Any any sleep deprived women? Only only one. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. No children. No no children. No pets helped. Yeah. Well, normal sleep stages. In normal sleep, there are there are um, five stages: stage one and stage two. Also, the slow wave sleep, which is stage three and four, and REM sleep. REM is rapid eye movement or your dream sleep. Now, if you have a problem where you have less rapid eye movement, less dream sleep, did you know that you are less capable of discerning emotions in other people, emotional expressions in the faces of other people, if you don't get enough REM at night? REM is also the phase of sleep, the dream sleep, where you actually consolidate memories, where the things you learn and study during the day go into part of your brain called the hippocampus, which is like short-term memory. And then as you sleep at night, there's consolidation where this memory gets transferred into the higher cortex for long-term storage. And it's during REM sleep that this happens. So if you're sleep-deprived and not getting enough REM, you don't remember and learn as well. Additionally, if you take certain sleep aids, prescription sleep medications called benzodiazepines, things like um, Clonopin, Xanax, Valium, Halcyon, Restoril, um, Temazepam, some of these medicines, they interfere with REM sleep. Uh, even medicines of the pseudo, not quite benzodiazepine in nature, like Ambien um, uh, and medicines like that, they actually can interfere with memory consolidation and interfere with learning because they interfere with this process, the ultra-sleep architecture. 
Uh, Post-traumatic stress disorder patients have frequent nightmares. You may know this. And the nightmares impair the ability for them uh, to consolidate the uh, emotional. See, what happens in sleep, let's say you have a, a difficult day. You've had something happen. It was emotional, stressful, conflict at work. During sleep and in the REM stages, the brain actually strips away the emotional aspect from the factual aspect. So you consolidate the memory so that you can remember the events the next day without all the emotional baggage attached to it. Except patients with PTSD don't get that. They don't get that. They miss that. And so this keeps coming up night after night again, these nightmares, because they're trying, the brain is trying to strip away this emotional stuff, but it's not succeeding. One of the theories behind that is that during REM sleep, we have a suppression of, of a particular brain chemistry called norepinephrine and serotonin, but patients with PTSD have an over, uh, over amount of norepinephrine in the brain, and the idea is that maybe they're, they're not able to, to lower the levels enough for this to happen. I saw a hand somewhere. Yes. Is it true that people who have mental illness don't have long dreams? I've heard that. That they act out their dreams when they're awake rather than dreaming when they're asleep. No. That's not true. No. Um, People with uh, with, uh, mental illness uh, often have lots of dreams and often have more dreams, the nightmares and intrusive dreams and things like that. With various, especially with the anxiety disorders. I put in the notes, for those who get the notes, some of the scientific articles are actually just attached in the notes that you can look at some of this if you want. Sleep is important to our physical health. Poor sleep is linked to increased risk of diabetes, obesity, coronary artery disease, and immune problems. If you don't get regular and consistent sleep, your body physiology is altered by that. Sleep deprivation can mimic, mimic other disorders such as depression or ADHD. There was a study of 83 children um, diagnosed with attention deficit disorder at the University of Louisiana, excuse me, University of Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, the Dr. Gozal and his colleagues found that a quarter of those diagnosed with mild ADHD suffered instead from sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is a condition in which when you uh, are asleep, the soft tissues in your back of your throat and mouth, your tongue and so forth, relax so much that they cover over your windpipe. And so as your diaphragm tries to draw in air in your sleep, there's no air movement because the air pipe, the windpipe is covered. And then the oxygen levels will fall to a point that your brainstem will set off an alarm to wake you up just enough to tighten up the muscles. And you go, <clears throat> and as soon as you take that deep breath, the brainstem, brainstem alarm goes off, you're right back. So you're in and out of stage one sleep all night. And people who have this actually think they're sleeping well, but they're not actually going through the normal sleep cycles. And they're also getting hypoxic. And so they suffered from sleep apnea compared with just 5% of those who had a strong ADHD. So if you had mild ADHD, there was a high, high likelihood you might actually have sleep apnea instead. A study of children undergoing surgery to remove their tonsils and adenoids, tonsils and adenoids, back of the throat, contribute to sleep apnea in some kids, found that before the operation, 25% of them were diagnosed with ADHD. Only 7.4% of the healthy controls were diagnosed with ADHD. But a year after the operation, half of the children who were diagnosed with ADHD no longer met criteria for ADHD after the tonsillectomy which means they weren't actually getting healthy sleep. And if you don't get healthy sleep, see, what is ADHD? ADHD is a dysfunction of prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain right behind your forehead. This is where you organize, plan, strategize, process emotions, self-restrain, initiate, stay on task, concentrate, focus. This is prefrontal cortex. ADHD is a dysfunction of certain uh, neurochemicals in the prefrontal cortex that can be helped with medication. But sleep apnea or any sleep deprivation, if you just deprive yourself of sleep, stay up all night tonight, 
tomorrow your prefrontal cortex will not work as well. And so sleep deprivation or sleep uh, problems impair prefrontal cortex function where you don't organize, you don't plan, you don't prioritize, you don't modulate mood well, you don't problem solve well. And so sleep deprivation diminishes capacity to modulate the impulses coming out of our limbic system and results in increased impulsivity, less ability to organize, plan, focus, concentrate, and problem solve sleep deprivation. And sleep deprivation in childhood during the developmental years can actually alter brain development. You don't get the complex synaptic-synaptic development if you don't get enough sleep during childhood. Now, let me tell you some ages and what normal sleep hours are. Let's see if you all can get this. Newborn babies, how much do they need to sleep a day? Six. You're very, very close. 18 hours a day. Newborn babies, 18 hours a day. 1 to 12 months. 1 month to 12 months of age. How many hours a day? 14 to 18 hours a day. 1 to 3 years, 12 to 15 hours a day. 3 to 5 years of age, 11 to 13 hours a day. 5 to 12 years of age, 9 to 11 hours a day. Or the brain won't develop in this healthy way. Adolescence, which is up to about age 17, 18, or 19, somewhere in that range, 9 to 10 hours a day. Are your adolescents getting that much sleep? No, they don't actually sleep. They only appear 24 hours a day to us because we go to bed and they're up in their room all night doing stuff. And then they go to bed about 3 in the morning and then they sleep all day the next day. So it looks like they're sleeping all day. <laughs> and adults, including the elderly, 7 to 8 hours a day. And pregnant women, 8, or eight to 9 hours a day. So what things can we do to improve our sleep? Exercise. Excellent. Exercise as long as it's not within three hours of bedtime. Because three hours of bedtime you actually will interfere with sleep at night. So as long as it's not within three hours of bedtime, exercise is excellent. Don't eat late at night. Excellent. That's right. Don't eat late at night. How about make sleep a priority? Make the decision that sleep is important and a priority, and it's more important than doing your homework if it's late at night, doing your housework, uh, television, video games, uh, and all these things. Yes? I think one of the things that we have very subtly in our culture is it has almost become a badge of honor to say, oh, I got four hours of sleep last night. It's like it makes you somehow stronger or superior that you're functioning on that. It's become this subtle little thing to... To, I don't want to say brag about because that's not the word. But you never feel good about saying, I got nine hours of sleep every night this week. That doesn't elevate you. Actually, as an, as an adult, nine hours of sleep is probably too much. All right, eight hours of sleep. There you go. Seriously. Nine, nine, no, seriously, nine hours, nine to ten hours of sleep for an adult will actually be harmful as too little sleep. Okay, so yes, too much sleep is not helpful either as an adult. Nine hours of sleep is good for adolescents and kids, nine to ten, eleven. Yes, they need that. The consolidating brain, lots of brain reconstruction, lots of new branching, pruning, all that stuff. They need that for the brain to do all this stuff. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Can I sleep an hour every other hour? <laughs> well, in ab, uh, you know, a little siesta, there, there's, two, there's two times when your bi- biological clock wants to sleep. It's about 10 o'clock at night, you get this real sleep urgency to go to sleep, and about uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, there's another increased desire to sleep, the old siesta. And uh, if you take a brief nap, 15 minutes or so, it can be beneficial. To, uh, br- br- uh, sleeping longer than that can actually interfere. Like an hour long, it can actually make it harder to sleep at night. Um, but other things that can help us sleep. Allow time. Uh, schedule yourself. Don't go to bed at midnight if you have to get up and go to school at 6 in the morning. 
You have to get up and go to work. Give yourself the proper time. Go to bed at the time you can get the hours of sleep. Creating a relaxing and quiet environment. Um, avoiding caffeine. Let me just mention quickly. Does anybody know how caffeine works? See, caffeine is a deceptive molecule. It gives you the illusion that it's helping you give energy. It does not give you energy. During the day, and on a body level, our energy comes from glucose, from food that turns it into glucose. That's where most of our energy comes from. But inside the cells, uh, the cells take the glucose and turn it into something called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And adenosine triphosphate, tri, like tricycle or tripod, means three. So you have three phosphate molecules, three phosphate molecules hooked to an adenosine molecule. Okay? And, and as it goes through the cycle to give energy, it gives off a phosphate that releases energy, gives an adenosine diphosphate, and then adenosine monophosphate, and it keeps giving off energy. You've got plain old depleted adenosine. Adenosine has no more energy to give. And as the day goes along, your adenosine levels are rising. You have receptors in your brain that register the rise of adenosine. As you register the rise of adenosine, you get fatigued. You get tired. Your body says, I need to rest. I'm going to go to sleep. And then sleep, all this adenosine get repackaged, adenosine diphosphate. You wake up fresh, ready to roll. Caffeine blocks the adenosine receptors. So even though adenosine levels are rising, you're depleting your ATPs, caffeine blocks the receptors that signal that, so you get the illusion that you're not tired, but you actually don't have more energy. And so over the course of time, you deplete your vital energy stores and it increases fatigue and wears out the, 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 uh, the, the cells on a cellular level. So caffeine's not a good thing. So get rid of the caffeine. Alcohol, by the way, people will sometimes take alcohol to try to sleep. Alcohol alters sleep architecture. And it actually uh, reduces REM sleep and you don't get good memories consolidation. You don't get the restful fit sleep that you need. Um, it also causes dehydration. Um, if you have a new infant, things to help sleep, you have a new infant, arrange for help. Seriously, arrange to have someone help you at least several nights a week uh, during that time. Uh, do not let children or pets in bed with you. What about husbands? Yeah. <laughs> Should I even comment on that? <laughs> arrange for help, somebody said. <laughs> Okay, uh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, cool environment, actually, is very helpful. A cool environment. Mel uh, if you need an agent to help you sleep, melatonin, three milligrams over the counter, about six or seven o'clock in the evening, uh, four, about four, four hours before you go to bed. And sometimes if you have a sleep phase shift, you can use a bright light in the morning. Bright light in the morning, melatonin in the evening will help reconsolidate your sleep, a good solid sleep at night. And then a healthy spirituality. It's hard to sleep if your conscience is not clear. True? Yeah, so a clear conscience is, is very beneficial. Much of the time, if we would listen to our bodies, they tell us we would get enough rest. What keeps you from listening to your body? Too much to do. Sometimes we don't understand the language. Oh, we don't understand what we're hearing. So aches and pains could be our body telling us we need sleep, so we take Advil instead. Mm, we're not listening. Yeah, could be. All right, well, let's jump into Thursday's lesson because this is where I get to the fun stuff. I just wanted to share some of that science with you guys about sleep uh, and the importance of sleep and why, and it really will make a difference. I can just tell you from my own experience, when I got out of high school, I went to, I got a job working third shift. I was 19, went to University of Tennessee, Chattanooga for some chemistry classes, but I was working third shift, 11 to 7 at night, went to my classes 8 in the morning. I had to drop my class. I was getting D's. D's. Drop my classes, switched my shifts, went on second shift, slept at night, went to school, got same classes, A's. I could not function on sleep deprivation. My brain wouldn't work. So I know personally firsthand that that is true. And all this data shows that third shift workers die younger. 
with more illness than people who sleep at night. But they call it the health profession. Yeah, the, the help. The health profession. The health profession, yeah. All right, Thursday's lesson, first paragraph, it says... Um, God rested on the seventh day after completing his work of creation. The Hebrew verb for rested, there comes from the same word designated Sabbath. This fact shows that just how God ingrained into the fabric of creation itself, the seventh day Shabbat or Sabbath, and the rest it offers really are. However hard for us to fully grasp, the text makes it clear that God himself rested on the Sabbath day. Now, now that, that, that phrase got me there. However hard it is for us to grasp, the text makes it clear that God himself rested on the Sabbath day. Why is it hard for us to grasp? God shouldn't get tired, she says. Ah, see, there's a good question, right? Is it hard for us to grasp because we forgot the setting of the great controversy? The nature and character of God, the nature and character of sin, the purpose of the creation of the Sabbath. Yes. Isn't that word rest that used uh, have a meaning of cessation? Yes. You know, his work, completely finished, not necessarily fatigue rest, but a cessation of what he was doing. Was it a physical rest that God needed? No. And it says in uh, John chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, Jesus speaking says, Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried harder to kill him because he was breaking the Sabbath. Did God stop working when he rested on the Sabbath? No. No. Mm, have you ever thought about that? When you think about God rested on the Sabbath, the, the lesson would implicate that he rested and he stopped working. Did he stop his work? Did he stop expending energy? That's the definition of work, isn't it? Work is the expenditure of energy. Did he stop expending energy on the Sabbath? No. No. And here's a comment from the book Education. Some of you are familiar with that book, page 195. As regards this world, God's work of creation is completed, for the works were finished from the foundation of the world. But his energy is still exerted in upholding the objects of his creation. It is not because the mechanism that has once been set in motion continues to act by its own inherent energy that the pulse beats and the breath follows breath. But every breath, every pulsation of the heart is an evidence of the all-pervading care of him in whom we live and move and have our being, Acts 17.28. It is not because of inherent power that year by year the earth produces her bounties and continues her motion around the sun. The hand of God guides the planets and keeps them in position in their orderly march through the heavens. He brings out their, the host by number. He calls them all by name by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power and one that fails not. Uh, Isaiah forty twenty six. It is through his power that vegetation flourishes and the leaves appear and the flower blooms. Education 195. Did God stop his work on Sabbath? Did he rest from his work on Sabbath? Maybe it depends on what you call work. Expending energy to sustain his universe. Well, there may be different forms of work. Yeah, so what did he rest from on Sabbath? What do you understand the Sabbath rest? Rested his case. Rested from his creation work. Rested his case. Rested his demonstration of evidence. Yeah, do you understand when a lawyer rests his case? He's presented. He's presented a total picture, and people are then, the jury is then left free to decide. 
In the context, what was happening in the universe during creation week of planet Earth? The war had already broken out. Lucifer had begun his war. Remember, we do not wage wars the world does. The weapons we fight are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Lucifer put arguments up against the truth about God. This is his war. He's the father of lies. He's lying. Intelligent beings are confused. What do we believe? God begins to give evidence. Let there be light. Let the firmament come forth. Let us make man in our image. Let them be fruitful and multiply. As the Father, Son, and Spirit come into unity and create beings in their image, a new creation given God-like abilities, power to create, and dominion to rule. The earth created by God as a lesson book, it says in Corinthians. Uh, so that the heavenly beings look down and see something and learn something about God. What would they have learned if, the, if Adam and Eve had stayed loyal, had children in a world in which Adam and Eve operated in perfect harmony with God's character of love? Would they have brought children in the world to abuse, to enslave, to demand worship from, to threaten, to coerce? No. Or would they have been giving of themselves constantly for the benefit of their kids? And the universe and the angels go, oh, I get it. God didn't create us to enslave us, to abuse us, to lord over us. But he's giving of himself constantly for our health and welfare. The lies of Satan get exposed. God created the earth and rested his case. Universe, take 24 hours aside and consider the evidence. But what happened after man sinned? After man sinned, did God have a new work to do? His first work, after Satan began his allegations, was to present the evidence. Notice, I just want you to really notice these, these, these issues. It's very, it's very profound. Is God all-powerful? Yes. No question about it. Did he create all things? Inanimate, inanimate. Yes. yes. In heaven, Lucifer begins to lie and tell the angels in heaven that God is not trustworthy and we don't need to follow him and his leadership and his law in heaven. Is God still all-powerful even though Lucifer is lying about him? Did God use his power to put the angels in their place? No. Think that through. He had the power to do it. Why didn't he? Love. Say it. Love. What would have happened if God would have used his power to say, Obey me or I'll kill you? Fear. Yes, fear instantly. And God, the Bible tells us God's core nature is... Love. If you present a God that says, love me, or I will kill you, you're lying about God. God never uses that type of approach. He could have done it in heaven. Soon as he does, love is destroyed. This is a law I'm telling you. It's part of God's nature. Law of his universe called the law of liberty. And it is testable right here, right now. Try it on your spouse or kids. I love you guys. I love you so much. I, I go to work every day and work hard, spend, spend overtime at time to, to get the money to put you in private schools, to buy food for you. And I only want you to be healthy and happy and to love me. But if you disobey me, if you break my rules, while you're sleeping, I'm coming in tonight, pouring gas on you and lighting you on fire. Will your children love you more? Will your spouse love you more? But this is what we say. God says, look, I love you guys. I love you so much. I, I created the whole world for your happiness and health. I send the sunshine and the rain. I give the angels to watch over you. I sent my son to die for you. That's how much I love you. But if you don't love me, I will pour fire out from heaven and torture you till you die. It says in Desire of Ages, page 761, 
that in the opening of the great controversy, Satan misrepresented the character of God. He said, these are the words that Ellen White says came from Satan. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. That God, in order to be a God of truth and justice, much must punish sin. That is, according to Ellen White, Satan's position about God. Should we promote that position? No. 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 She goes on to say in other places that Satan accused God of being arbitrary, exacting, these are her words, not mine, revengeful and severe. The very attributes that belong to the character of Satan, the evil one represented as belonging to the character of God. What do we do when we hear representations of an angry and wrathful and revengeful God? Do we just say amen? Most defendants. Yes. Uh, don't we have to have a just God, a universe that is just? If God just allows anything to go, then what kind of universe do we have? What you see in the Bible is justice and love combined in the most unique and marvelous way. I'm so happy you're here. Amen. Amen. I appreciate this comment. Do you not appreciate this comment? Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for this comment. I mean that with all my heart. Because this needs to be clarified. Don't we have to have justice? Or God has to be just? What is justice in God's universe? In the Greek New Testament, somebody said righteousness. The word translated justice is the same word translated righteousness. Doing what's just is doing what's right. Doing what's right is doing what's just. Would we agree? Yes? No? Yes. Um, what, what is the definition or standard of righteousness in God's universe? What is the standard upon which righteousness is determined or measured? Self-sacrificing love. It is the law of love, which is the foundation of God's government and to which justice and righteousness are measured. And so, with that standard in mind, what does justice look like? Love. It looks like love. And so, what does love do? Let's give some specific examples now. Husband loves his wife, and his wife decides to rebel and break her covenant vow and break love and cheat and leave him for another man. This, of course, is the metaphor from Scripture, right? Gomer and, and the prophet, right? Yeah, and Hosea. This is the metaphor from Scripture. God calls us an adulterous people, adulterous nation. This is the metaphor that God teaches us to understand. So let's say, woman decides to rebel against her husband, break the marriage vow, break the covenant of love, and go off and give her heart to another. The husband is, in the metaphor, is God. He loves. He's just. So what does he do? Well, not yet. No, no, no. No, uh-uh. That's not what he does. He goes after her. He goes after her. And he tries to persuade her. He tries to win her back with actions and deeds. And even has envoys and representatives go to plead his case for her. To win her back. But if she insists on leaving, no matter what he does, if she absolutely insists on leaving, what is the only loving action he can take? What's the only just action he can take? And if the source of our life, do we not derive, all our life comes from where? And if the source of our life lets go, what happens? And the wages of sin is death. Isn't it an affliction? Or is it our choice? Um, I was talking to my 11-year-old nephew this morning about this very thing. And I said, 
Imagine a, a, a father who's also a physician has a child, a son, who gets very sick. Maybe the son gets sick because the son was disobeying the dad and went out without their um, rain gear and their boots and, and went out in the cold and, and got sick and got pneumonia because of this disobedience. Does the father hate the child because of their disobedience? No. Does the father hate the pneumonia which is killing the child? Yes. The physician hates sickness and disease. Does the physician father want to destroy with a passion and a true hatred the sickness and disease that's destroying his child? Does he want to destroy his child? Ever want to destroy the How about the child is an adult child with sentience and, and, and free will? And so the father wants to, still a physician, wants to provide remedy to this child, but the child is unruly and rebellious. He's 25, and he won't listen to dad and won't take the remedy. Does the dad ever hate the child? Does he hate the unruliness and rebellion and, and the sickness that's killing the child? Would he like to destroy that? Does he want to destroy the child? If the child insists on rebelling and won't take the remedy, will the father have to kill the child in order to be just? No. Will the child die? Yes. And will he die because the laws of health are in violation? Yes. So there is a just consequence to breaking God's law if it's not remedied. And that consequence is destruction of mind, destruction of soul, and eternal death. But that's what happens because... And the reason people get confused on this whole justice thing... It comes down to understanding God's law. There are two ways to understand God's law. One way is the way that we are taught in Scripture and the way we're taught in Ellen White's writings, that the law of God is the law of love, which is the foundation of his government, and all the universe is constructed and built to operate on this law. And it emanates from his character, because God is love. It was not created, it was not imposed, it does not have a beginning, and it does not have an end, because the law of love comes from God's character. That's one way to understand God's law. And when God began to create life, he created life to operate on this law. It's the operating template of life. Another way to understand God's law is that God made life, and then he made a law. And he imposed a law that all his beings have to abide by. And if you break that law, then the powerful opposer of the law has to impose penalties in order to be just. And this is the lie of Satan. And this is what's commonly taught in the vast majority of religions of the world, and including Christianity in our church. And it is a lie. And I can't say it strongly enough. It is a lie. Does anybody have confusion about that? Yes? This discussion is helpful. What about the tyrants of history such as Hitler? So what about them? What's the question? How's God going to deal with them? They will die. The wages of sin is death. That's all? Does, does the Bible say the wages of sin is something more than that? Well, the question of justice says that something different is going to happen to Hitler from a common thief who breaks into your house. Does it really say that? Does it? Well, that's human justice, isn't it? Is it fair? Is it just if there's not a difference? Well, actually, there is a difference, but I, I, before, but I want to tease out this, this idea. Because we project onto God our belief. It's not fair. It's not fair. that's the way we are. That's the way we are, yes. Uh, I'm going to come and I'm going to explain. There is a difference, but it's not imposed by God. Yes. What do you say where Mrs. White says some will burn longer than others? Thank you. Oh, I love this class. You guys are bringing up the good stuff. Yes. All righty. And so let's look at the scripture evidence. See if we can't bring home the point of what justice looks like and why. Write these texts down if you have some of the right down. Because I want you to go and check them. Isaiah 33, 14. The sinner in Zion is terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with the eternal burning? Verse 15. 
He who walks righteously and keeps his hand away from murder, bribe, and extortion is the one who is in the fire, not the wicked. You see, most of Christianity teaches the wicked are in the fire suffering. The Bible teaches that it is the righteous who live in the fires that never go out. Well, how do we understand this? Go back to Exodus. Let's go through the Bible. Exodus, Moses talks to God at the bush. What is the bush doing? Is the bush get consumed? In Exodus 20, God comes down to Sinai. What is the mountain described as doing? Did it melt as a nuclear weapon hit it? No. When Solomon's temple is dedicated, the priest cannot enter the temple because... On the day of dedication, because the brightness of the glory was too great, did the temple burn? No. no. Uh, what kind of a vehicle did Elijah go to heaven in? Chariot of fire. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 says the Ancient of Days takes his throne and rivers of fire come out before him. And 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands stand in this fire. Ezekiel chapter 28 tells us that before uh, Lucifer's rebellion that he walked among the fiery stones of God's presence. Hebrews 12.29 says our God is a consuming fire. We already read in our class today that in Revelation we won't need in the new heaven and new earth the sun to light it because God's presence will be its light. The lie that Satan has foisted upon Christianity is the place you don't want to go and the place you don't want to be is the place of eternal burning and consuming fire. And that place is God's very presence. Now, let's pull some more pieces together on this. When Moses came down off the mountain, what's his face doing? Because he spent 40 days in God's presence. He's got actual... Could the Israelites see it? Did Moses have third degree burns? Did his whiskers get burned? Is this a fire of combustion? No, it's not a fire of combustion. Yet... It's causing suffering, suffering, your question of suffering, was caused to the Israelites because they saw this fire coming from Moses' face. So they begged him to put a veil over his face because they couldn't tolerate the heavenly light. You can read about this in Patriarchs and Prophets where she said, in their conscious guilt, it caused suffering to their soul uh, where they would have rejoiced if they not had this conscious guilt. Um, In Thessalonians, it tells us that, that the wicked are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. So now we have this strange fire here. Fire that doesn't burn bushes, doesn't burn whiskers, doesn't burn down the temple, yet it destroys the wicked. Why? Well, Ellen White says, to sin, wherever it is found, our God is a consuming fire. What is this fire coming to consume? Sin. Sin. What's this podium made out of? Wood. Wood. And uh, your, your clothes are either polyester or cotton, right? Okay. What's sin made out of? This fire is coming to burn up sin. How many times when you think of the fire that's going to burn up sin, do you think material, physical, substance, molecules, combustion? Is sin made out of molecules? Sin is ideas, concepts, attitudes, and at its root, sin has two roots. Two roots to sin. Lies. Satan is the father of lies. And selfishness, which is the opposite of love. Now, if you have a lie in your heart and mind, what is it that if it comes into your mind will burn out a lie? Truth. Truth. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of? Truth. And if you have selfishness in your heart, if this comes into your heart, it will destroy and root out and burn out selfishness. What is that? Love. And God is? So when the Holy Spirit comes, is it not the spirit of truth and love? And on Pentecost, when the Spirit fell, they saw tongues of? Fire. Did anyone get burned? No. Interesting. Did they burn out the divisions and the discord and did they come into a unity of love? Yes, they did. Now, let's put it together even further. In Leviticus, Nadab and Abihu, 
Nadab and Abihu take unauthorized fire into the Lord, into the sanctuary. Anybody remember what happened? Oh, fire came out from the Lord. These are words. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Next words. Next words. Moses calls the cousins, right in the next verse, to go in and carry out their bodies, get this, still in their tunics. Now, if I hit you with a flamethrower so that I consume you and you die before me, will you still be in your clothes? No. You see, we have this twisted idea what this fire is. It is not a fire of combustion. It is a fire of unveiled truth and love. When God said to Moses, no one can see my face and live, what was he talking about? When Ellen White says that if Jesus would have come to earth in the glory that he shared with the Father before his incarnation, what would he have done to those who came to save? Because he was angry and wrathful and wants to make justice serve to make them pay, right? No, because unremedied sinful hearts and minds cannot survive in the presence of unveiled glory of God. Uh, let's go. I got to bring all these pieces together. We're almost there, because we want to ask the question: Why some suffer longer? Do some suffer longer? Yes, they do, and here's why. I have patients who were molested as kids, and as in the therapy, at some point, they will often say something like this: "I just wish my dad would admit what he did. I just wish my mom would just admit it. Just admit it." And I say to them, let's take that at face value. If your parent who abused you as a child were to right now today admit it, what would they have to go through in their own internal self? Would there not be guilt? Would there not, if they truly admitted it, honestly, would there not be guilt, self-loathing, shame, self-disgust, an agonizing of soul that still un, right now is under the umbrella of God's grace? And if they were admitting it, the Holy Spirit would be there helping them and they would be converted and healed, right? But it would still be a painful, ugly process, wouldn't it be? And so they don't go through it most of the time. They instead do what Paul says, piles up wrath for the day of wrath. How do they pile up wrath for the day of wrath? They continue to lie and distort. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me, God. If she wouldn't give me the fruit, I'd never done anything wrong. I'm not at fault. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. Lie and distort, lie and distort, deny, twist, externalize, project, avoid and evade their true heart and their true condition. What happens to minds that do that? On the day they come face to face with unveiled truth and love. They will no longer be able to hide from their own condition and their own unremedied sinful character and the full weight of their history and what they've done comes to weigh on them and they experience themselves for what they really are, not what they've lied to themselves to believe they are. And the longer a person has sinned, the more lies they have piled up over the history of their life, the longer it takes the truth to burn through in their mind for them to review and, 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 and process through in their mind the history of their own lives. So some are in this fire of truth burning longer because there's a lot more lies to burn through in their minds. And every one of those is agony and suffering. No, I don't want to see myself now. Okay? Until they finally die. And how do we know? Where is this fire and this torment? Revelation 14, third angel's message. And the wrath of God is poured out, unmixed in the fury, and they uh, fire and brimstone, right? Where does it take place? Right in the verse. In the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. And the word brimstone in the Revelation text is the Greek word theon, which is the neutered form of theos. Theos means divine. The theologian studies theos, theon, is simply the fire of God's presence. The Greek actually tells us. And so, yes, some will suffer longer. Why, though? 
because God has to perform a miracle to keep them alive so he can torture them to make them pay, or because their own unremitied condition in God's presence is the source of their torment and, and, and suffering. Yes? In Revelation 9, which you quote, is an allusion to Isaiah 34, 10, in which is talking about the destruction of Edom. And it goes on and says, the smoke was up forever and ever, and it'll be desolate forever. And? Destroyed. Yes. And they will be eternally destroyed. Yes. Yes, I just, I just described that process. So, the, as they, after they die, then there's another fire that comes after they're all dead, which the elements melt in the fervent heat and the earth is renewed. I wanted you to explain Revelation 6, where it talks about the fifth seal. I saw another altar under the slow of souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I, I agree with your with your statements that they're very well explained. To me, justice means fairness, and to a certain degree, yes, the consequences of our decisions come as a result of God's character upon us. But one thing that comforts me when I think of those who lose their loved ones to murderous killers and stuff, the thing that comforts them is to know that fairness is ultimately going to come to the very end. You know, and and what and what is fairness? Part of the fairness is those who are suffering as a result of the, the damage, the hurt that they have portrayed. We think of God saying, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. And when I think of God being someone who's going to, to deal in fairness, the result, as much as he loves that human being, he also loves the one who's been touched, someone who has totally turned himself off from God. And has allowed himself, Satan is going to be dealt in a fair way for all the harm, all the injury, all the sorrow he has brought. And it's called God's strange act. It's contrary to his nature and character. But yet in his love, he is dealing with the crime in a fair and just way. Any justice is fair. The consequences for the decision are going to be... Did I describe something that was unfair? No, I'm not saying that, but, but I wasn't getting the message across from what you were explaining that, that they're going to meet their just dues. Because what is their just dues? Are you going to vindicate me? Are you going to vindicate? And what is, and what is it that vindicates a saint? The consequences of their choices are they're going to meet, meet the, ultimate, um, the ultimate judgment. You've alluded to a lot of things, but you haven't been specific. Let's be specific. What do you believe justice is for them? What is, what is it? You have an idea in your mind and you didn't feel like I spoke it. So what is it that you think I didn't speak? What do you think caused Christ more torment? The physical beating and crucifixion or the mental anguish that he went through? Which was more more painful? So which is going to cause the wicked more torment? Some physical imposition of pain to their body or coming face to face with the consequences and the reality of their own unhealed sinful heart in contrast to the glory of God and realization of what they've actually done to other people? Which is going to cause them more torment? The emotional This is what I just described they get. And it's a direct result of their unhealed minds and hearts. Is that not just? And what is it that vindicates? Is it not the truth that vindicates? If someone lied about you and said, you are an adulterer and you've been stealing money from the church, what is it that finally goes, yes, is when the truth comes out and reveals that you are not an adulterer and you've never taken any money and that person lied? 
That's what vindicates you. Exactly. Okay, and the vindication is that the judgment is the truth is known by all. And the truth damages and, and hurts those who live in lies. Yes? What? Yes. Tim, yeah. in my sinful state, when someone has done something wrong to me or my children, I kind of want to see them hurt for it, and like, like she's saying about, but I'm sinful to do that. I have to get to the place where I don't want vengeance and pain on that other person, that I want to forgive them. I know that they are going to be... Uh, not have eternal life, and that should be enough. If we are wishing Hitlerism on Hitler, are we any better than Hitler? So, all right, now let me let me just follow up on that. Let's say, how would you feel in here regarding this whole question of justice if you find out somebody has been molesting your five-year-old little girl? <laughs> what do you want? He said he wants a knife. How about if the person's molesting your five-year-old little girl is your 14-year-old son? Now what do you want? Oh, wait a second. What happened to all this justice? What happened to this pay? You understand every one of us are God's children. And in fact, suddenly when it's your 14-year-old son who's molesting your five-year-old little girl, if you are seeing things with an eternal vision, who are you more concerned with? The son. Because the son has serious sinfulness issues in his heart, or he's going to be lost. The daughter may have some trauma issues that we need to work through, but the son's character is way warped. And if you are a loving parent, you are way more concerned with the son than you are with the daughter. Not that you don't love the daughter, but you realize the issues there are not as severe as the ones for the son. If you have a heavenly perspective. This is God's perspective. I'm telling you, we have a very ugly perspective of God being taught. We have been warped by it. Our minds have been clouded by it. And we see God in the light of human uh, justice. And we project upon him. And we need this God who's going to inflict pain. And so, the Bible will give sometimes metaphors like that. And descriptions like that. Because the Bible is talking to a lot of children in darkness. And sometimes when you're talking to kids. And they say, it's not fair. She got to do that. Don't worry. Daddy will take care of it. Daddy will punish her for her mistakes. Oh, good, she's going to get hers. Daddy's going to be fair. I mean, you see how we think. This is exactly, this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 5. It says, what's wrong with you people? You should be adults by now, but you're still infants on spiritual milk. Don't you know that, that infants on milk are not acquainted with righteousness? It's the mature that know what righteousness is. And it goes on to tell you in the next verse, he says, and what is it that immature focus on? Deeds or acts of transgression, behavior, sins that require repentance. That's what the kids are focused on. The righteous are focused on character. There's a hand over here has been up for a long time. Well, just to, I think she alluded to it where the scripture says vengeance is mine. God claims vengeance is his own. And yet, that act of vengeance is not glad or happy life is lost because of that. I had so many more things I wanted to go through today, guys. And we're out of time. Um, we're already two minutes over. I had some really important things from, from Thursday's lesson when it talked about some of these things about uh, resting in God because the payment that Christ made in our behalf and those types of things, that, that type of language.
It says in Tuesday's lesson, it includes freedom from pain and guilt, to talk about the Sabbath rest, that accompany the human struggle for acceptance through good works. We can rest in the promise that we are accepted by God because Jesus' perfect work, and certainly not of our own imperfect, imperfect ones. By his grace and transforming power of the Spirit, Christians can yield themselves to Jesus and he will give them rest. The just shall live by faith. Human efforts fall far short from the high standard that God requires of us. It is so comforting to know that Jesus paid the penalty for sin and that his righteousness covers us, a righteousness that exists outside of us but is credited to us by faith, contains our assurance of eternal life. His perfect life and sacrifice are our only hope. In him, our soul can find rest. Any of us would be given if not for the rest of God. Exactly right. So how can we feel right about saying, well, he should suffer more? Because... If it weren't for God's work in my life, I would be that person. Um, imagine an HIV ward. In an HIV ward, if you've ever done an AIDS ward, anybody ever work on an AIDS ward besides me? A couple of people have. You know, AIDS presents with multiple different presentations. Some people have pneumocystis coronary infections of the, of the lungs. Some people have cytomegalovirus infections of the, of the, of the retinas. Other people have carposy sarcomas uh, with lesions of the skin. All suffering from the same disease, but they present differently. Now imagine on that ward, we have the pneumonia group over here, we have the carposis sarcoma group over here, we have the cytomegalovirus group over here. And these over here that are going blind are making fun and criticizing those over there with that loud cough. And those with the loud cough are, are making fun of those people over here with these lesions on their, on their skin and criticizing and running them down and say, though that is growth, they should suffer for those lesions on their skin. You, you follow me here? But now let's say they all have free remedy. Let's say there's a remedy, it will cure them all. And there's some of them take the remedy and some of them reject the remedy. Will those who reject the remedy suffer more than those who take the remedy? Yes. Oh, is that just? Is it just? Sure it is. Is it inflicted by an, a, a, a wrathful and angry doctor? No, understand, this is what it is. And, and we are sick. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We had no choice in the matter. Understand, everyone in this room, you never had a choice not to be a sinner. Adam and Eve had a choice not to be a sinner. You and I had no choice. We were born dead in trespass and sin, is what the scripture says. This is our, we had no choice. Our only choice, so an HIV-infected man and woman get together an HIV-infected kid, the kid did nothing wrong. But the kid still has a condition. If unremedied, we'll kill it. That's our situation. That was Hitler's situation. Hitler didn't take the remedy. And you see what happens when remedy is not applied. And remedy, of course, is the Holy Spirit applying all that Christ achieved to our hearts and minds, renewing and regenerating us into Christ's likeness. If we take the remedy, then we get healed and restored and regenerated. If we don't, then we actually damage and damage and damage and damage ourselves, and we will suffer miserably from unremedied sin. There's a real problem I have when people present a God that you're more afraid of God who's trying to save you than sin, which is destroying you. Right. So, so back, back to, the, to the lesson question here. It talks about the rest that Jesus provides. It says that the idea that God accepts us because of Jesus' perfect work is what it says. Does this mean that God is unaccepting or somehow against us until Jesus presents his blood to the Father and the Father becomes convinced by Jesus to accept us? Now, Jesus had to come to earth, do his perfect work, my blood, Father, my blood, and now God is accepting before he was unaccepting. Yeah. Hmm. What happened to all the people 4,000 years previous? This is out of Signs of the Times, January 13, 1909. Christ was not only an expression of the Father's love, but a channel to convey the love of God to men. Hear that? 
Not only an expression, but a channel to convey the love. Christ loved us and gave himself for us. He gave his life that he might bring salvation to perishing sinners. Man could not satisfy the claims of justice. Now listen to this carefully. Because this is often heard in dark thinking and we misunderstand. But just think what it actually says. No human hand could apply the atoning blood and cleanse the heart from sin. Where is the atoning blood being applied? What's it actually doing according to this statement? The atoning blood is being applied to do what? Cleanse the heart from sin. And so what is it? What does atonement mean? Appeasement? Expiation? Payment? No, at one minute, unity. And so when man sinned, we're out of harmony with God. We're not in unity with Him. And the atoning blood is applied to mankind to bring us back into at one minute or unity with Him. We couldn't do it. Christ came to put us back in unity and oneness with God. Christ alone, by clothing His divinity with humanity, could reach mankind and bring it near to God. There it is. Atonement. He came, partook, brought us, humanity, back into union with God. When God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, in the compassionate life of Christ, we behold the character of the Father. Wow. Keep that in mind. That is a temp- that is a touchstone. That is a template. That is a standard. If you hear somebody describing God that contradicts what you see in the life of Christ, you're being lied to. He that has seen me seen the fa- has seen the Father, declares Christ. God does not love us because Christ died for us, but it was because He loved us that He gave Christ as a ransom for our sins. We can talk about that metaphor if you'd like. Satan has represented God as selfish and oppressive, as claiming all and giving nothing, as requiring the service of His creatures for His own glory and making no sacrifice for their good. But the gift of Christ reveals the Father's heart and testifies that the thoughts of God are toward us. And they are thoughts of peace and not of evil. It declares that while God's hatred of sin is as strong as death, what does he hate? Does he hate the sinner? No, No, hate sin. His love for the sinner is stronger than death. Having undertaken our redemption, he will spare nothing, however dear, which is necessary to complete his work. Is Jesus covering us from the view of the Father? No. No. Then what is Jesus covering us from when we say we're covered by the blood or covered by the robe of his righteousness? You know, as soon as Adam and Eve ran, uh, sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Why do we teach that Jesus is still trying to hide us from God? Something twisted about that. And then if you want to read Christ Optics Lessons, Praise 3.11, she talks about, by his per- perfect obedience, Christ has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him, and the, we live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with a garment of his righteousness. What does it mean? To be renewed, to be healed, to be restored, to be transformed. Then the Father looks at us and sees the perfect life of His Son. Because it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have gone to such incredible lengths to reach us. That when we fell into sin, when Adam and Eve rebelled, that You didn't just cast them off. That You came after mankind with a love that would not be quenched. That You came after mankind in the person of Your Son to reveal Your true character. To overcome sin in humanity by Your your perfect life that You lived, giving Yourself in love. And now for those of us who've seen this truth and trust You, we open our hearts. You promise to pour out Your Spirit. To take all that Christ has achieved. To write Your law of love in our 
our hearts and minds, to bring our thoughts into harmony with your thoughts. Our will merge with your will, that we can live your life of love, loving others more than ourselves. We pray for this regeneration and renewal now. And let us go forward from this place, presenting the truth about you, setting minds free from those ideas that keep people afraid of you and in darkness about you, that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.